Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're going to be discussing the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is the very first discourse that Gautama, sorry, Gautama Buddha gave in order to share with people what he had discovered in his enlightenment, his self-pursuit to enlightenment. So his very first discourse was the Four Noble Truths. And as we talk today and discuss the Four Noble Truths, you will understand why. Because without the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, a practitioner would find it extremely difficult to make any progress or have any baseline understanding of what the Buddha was talking about in terms of awakening the mind. Now keep in mind when the Buddha first left from the palace, he wasn't a Buddha. He wasn't Gautama Buddha. He was still unenlightened and he experienced discontentness of mind. He still experienced sadness and boredom and loneliness and guilt and shame and frustration and irritation. He was Siddhartha Gautama. He was the prince that was in that region of the world. And when he left and took up training with two different teachers, they were teaching him various things. And one of the things that they were teaching him is to disparage the body, you know, starving the body, hanging the body upside down from trees. Essentially, there was lots of different people in that region of the world that were looking to attain enlightenment or even professing that they had attained enlightenment. And over a two-year period of time, he was studying with these teachers, doing these various practices to the body. And what he realized is that he wasn't any closer to discovering or training the mind to eliminate this discontentness than he was when he first started and left the palace. So he left these original teachers after two years and went off on his own and went into the forest, into the jungle. And on his own over a four-year period, he slowly, gradually discovered the teachings that led to his self-enlightenment, his self-awakening. And during that time in the forest, one of his main realizations was that doing painful, horrible things to the body isn't going to lead to awakening of the mind. And this is where you'll see artwork and statues of him with his ribs sunken in and his stomach depleted, his muscle tissue depleted, just pretty much skin and bones. And you may even see in the artwork a young girl offering him some rice that he reluctantly accepts. And he realized at that moment that if he allowed the physical body to die, that he wouldn't be able to train the mind. So he reluctantly started to eat and gaining his health and gaining his strength, where his practice then pretty much took off 
where he started to then focus on training the mind rather than training the body. So even though he had left from those teachers, he still was kind of doing the same things that they were teaching. But eventually when he released that attachment, when he released those practices and started really focusing on the mind, this is where his progress really began. And after he attained enlightenment, of course, he waited for about seven weeks, ultimately contemplating whether or not to actually teach, and then ultimately deciding to go back and teach and share what he had discovered. And when he returned back to the area that he was in, four of his comrades that he was training with saw him along with one of his old teachers. And when they saw him, they saw meat and bones and they saw that he was well nourished. And of course, they were still starving the body and hanging it upside down from trees. And when they saw him, they were laughing and they were mocking him and they thought he had given up and kind of went back to the royal life of luxury and, you know, uh, kind of being well taken care of in the palace. But as he talked and he explained that, no, he was actually in the forest and he had discovered how to attain enlightenment and they mocked him and joked him. And because in their mind, their belief was that you had to do these horrible things to the body. So in order to convince them, he actually sat down and he took his hand and he touched the earth. And this is where animals came to testify on his behalf. Essentially, what he did is he performed a miracle. This is the only miracle that is really that he actually performed as part of his life. And after that, once he started teaching those first five aesthetics, people could see the truth for themselves. They didn't have to believe what he was saying. He didn't need to perform a bunch of miracles because the more he taught and people understood those teachings, their mind became slowly awake, gradually awake, where they were once angry and frustrated and uh, irritated. Their mind became more and more peaceful through learning and practicing his teachings. So people knew that he had attained enlightenment because the teachings that he shared led to their enlightenment as well. And this is how they knew that he was, in fact, a Buddha. Because a Buddha is going to attain enlightenment by themselves on an independent practice, which he did over those four years of being in the, in the forest by himself. And what a Buddha is also going to do is going to be able to lead others to enlightenment with their teachings, their self-discovered teachings. So what I'm going to share with you today is the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths. The reason why we call them the truths is because Gautama Buddha knew that these were truths. I know that they're truth. But in order for you to move closer and closer to enlightenment, you need to know that they're truth. So in other words, as I've said throughout this program, don't believe me about anything that I teach you today. As I teach you, I'm going to pause at different times and invite you to reflect on what I'm saying. Because for you to just listen and believe what I'm saying, it's not gonna liberate the mind. You need to see the truth for yourself so that you will acquire wisdom. And then through that wisdom, the mind will then operate differently and you will function more and more in an enlightened way. So let's get started with these teachings and help you understand the very first teachings that Gautama Buddha was sharing 
and why it really revolutionized what people were thinking of in terms of enlightenment during his lifetime. Because remember, they were all doing these horrible things to the body. And when he comes in and starts teaching these teachings that all have to deal with the mind, it really changed the way that people were thinking about enlightenment. And he was able to start to improve his teachings more and more and the quality of the mind of the people that he was teaching just continued to improve and improve and improve. So let me share with you the first of the three universal truths and I will share with you the three universal truths so that I can teach you the four noble truths. The three universal truths are a foundation for understanding the four noble truths. The first universal truth is called impermanence. What impermanence is in this universal truth that Gautama Buddha was sharing with us is essentially saying that there's no fixed or permanent state, that the mind is constantly moving from sadness to anger to frustration to happiness to excitement to boredom to loneliness, that the mind has a condition of it moving to all these different states, that it keeps moving through all these different states, that essentially the mind is unstable. It's not permanent or fixed. And you can even relate this to things in daily life. So essentially what the teaching of impermanence is sharing is that there isn't anything permanent in this world except for enlightenment or Nibbana. So this is the teaching that there's no constant or steady fixed state. Okay, this is the teaching. But you don't believe that. You don't believe it. You need to see that it's truth for yourself in order for you to gain this wisdom. So one of the best ways to prove that this is true and to gain wisdom around it is to be able to disprove the Buddha. So if you can disprove the Buddha, then essentially his teachings aren't true. So if he's saying that there's no constant, steady, fixed state, then all you have to do is find one thing that has a steady, constant, fixed state, and you've disproved the Buddha. So I will invite you to reflect on the things that I share. Is your hair permanent? Is it permanently the same color, the same length, and the same texture or same quality? No. The answer should be no if you look at that. What about your physical body? Is the physical body, has it been the same since you were born? Of course not. It's constantly growing, constantly changing. What about your job? Have you had the same job your whole life? Absolutely not. The same income? No. How about the same friends? Have you had the same friends your whole life? No. People keep coming in and out of your life. What about your parents? Are your parents permanent? No. You have a varying relationship with them and eventually they're going to die. They're not permanent either. So the more you investigate, the more you look around the world, you will see that there's nothing that's permanent. The weather is always changing. The trees are always growing. Your hair is always growing. Your relationships are changing. 
your partners that you're with are constantly changing. There's no constant, steady, or fixed state. This is impermanence. If this little talk has gained the wisdom for you that yes, you agree that everything is 100% impermanent, then great, you now have that wisdom. If you still don't see it, and there's something in your mind that you feel is permanent, then what you need to do is you need to walk around for one, two, three, four days and look to see if you really think that there's something that's permanent. So what I'd like to do is, is kind of pause for a moment and see if there's anyone in the virtual classroom or anyone online that's watching through our live stream. Can you name even just one thing that's permanent? Is there anything that's permanent? We have no comments on that, David. It seems that we're unable to name anything permanent. Okay, excellent. So there you go. If you're not convinced of this, and maybe you're just being shy and not, not talking, but if you're not convinced and you don't have the wisdom that everything is impermanent, then spend a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, whatever it takes you to walk around and look and find anything that's permanent. You won't be able to find anything that's permanent and that will convince your mind and you will have the wisdom nothing's permanent the only thing that's permanent is the mental state of nibbana okay the second universal truth the second universal truth is about discontentedness now the buddha used the word dukkha or at least the pali teachings we have the word dukkha a lot of people translate this to mean suffering well, I don't use the word suffering, and I'll explain to you why. When the Buddha described dukkha, he described three feelings. He described a painful feeling, a pleasant feeling, and a feeling that's neither painful nor pleasant. This is what he described as dukkha. Essentially, painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, all of these things are painful. They're painful feelings. Pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation. These are pleasant feelings. And then we've got feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. I would put in there loneliness, boredom, shyness. Being shy isn't painful. It isn't pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. It's kind of like uncomfortable, displeasing. It's kind of like if you were sitting on a bus and a stranger came and sat really, really, really close to you. It's not painful. It's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. It's uncomfortable, displeasing. So these are the three feelings that the Buddha described as dukkha and that a lot of people describe as suffering. Well, if we describe this as suffering and we translate it as suffering, it captures painful feelings. Yeah, when I, when I used to be sad and depressed and angry and frustrated, I would say, yeah, I was suffering. But when I was telling jokes and happy with friends and I was excited because I got a new car, I wouldn't say I was suffering. Or when that stranger comes and sits next to me on the bus, I wouldn't say I was suffering. So the primary goal of Gautama Buddha's teachings is to eliminate dukkha. So if we say eliminate suffering, 
then we're capturing about one-third of what the Buddha was talking about, about 33% of what the Buddha was talking about. So the practitioner's mind is missing 66% of what the Buddha was describing when he was talking about eliminating dukkha. So we're not trying to eliminate suffering. What we're doing is we're trying to eliminate the discontent mind or discontented or discontentedness. Because when the mind is angry, frustrated, sad, guilty, shameful, fears, the mind is discontent. When the mind is happy, excited, elated, the mind is discontent. And you know that because there's times where you've been really excited, really happy, and you've lost your mind and you've tripped and you fell and you hurt yourself because the mind was discontent. That was your karma. Because your mind was discontent, you lost your awareness of mind and you fell down and hurt yourself or some, something else. So these pleasant feelings lead to discontentedness of mind, especially because the mind wants to dwell and it longs for this happiness, this e excitement, this elation. And because the mind is longing for these pleasant feelings, the mind is discontent. And then, of course, when the mind is lonely or bored or shy or uncomfortable or displeased, the mind is discontent. So what we need to do in this practice of Gautama Buddha's teachings is we don't need to use the word dukkha because that's a really old language that nobody really communicates in anymore. We don't need to use the word suffering because suffering doesn't explain what the Buddha was talking about 100%. It only explains 30%, 33%. What we need to do is use this word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And what we understand in this second universal truth is that all unenlightened beings have discontentedness of mind. They experience sadness, anger, frustration, uh, guilt, shame, fears, extreme happiness, excitement, elation. The mind just pulls and pulls and pulls in that direction. And it experiences loneliness, boredom, shyness, or uncomfortable, displeasing mental state. Now, in this teaching of the universal truth of discontentedness, you heard me say happiness in there. Now, a lot of people in society would tell you the goal in life is to be happy. And this is what their, their goal in life is, to be happy. But we know that happiness is impermanent. It's not permanent. Therefore, the mind is not going to be able to hold on to happiness permanently. And when happiness is gone, the mind is going to move to sadness, to anger, to frustration, to loneliness, to something else. So we know that happiness is not the goal in life because it can't be sustained long term. It's still impermanent. The goal for Gautama Buddha's teachings is a peaceful mind, a calm mind, a serene mind, a content mind with joy. Some people will actually explain nibbana or enlightenment as happiness. But you've been happy before, and that was temporary. That was impermanent. Gautama Buddha knows and describes that nibbana is permanent. So we know that if nibbana is permanent and happiness is impermanent, that happiness is not nibbana. 
right? You understand that? Happiness is not Nibbana because Nibbana is permanent. Happiness is impermanent. So what we need to do is we need to move the mind into the middle where the mind can reside permanently peaceful, permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, and permanently joyful. Essentially eliminate these discontent feelings. Now when somebody attains enlightenment, they will be joyful, which contains happiness. So there will be happiness, but you won't dwell and long for that happiness. You might be happy, you might tell a joke, but then the mind comes right back to the middle. So the goal in this practice is not to attain happiness. You already have been happy and it's impermanent. The goal is to attain peacefulness, calmness, serenity of mind, content mind with joy. Now here with this second universal truth of discontentedness, what you need to do in order to see that it's truth, that this describes your mind, the unenlightened mind, is say, okay, the Buddha says painful feelings, pleasant feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Now, can you come up with a feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories? Are there anybody that has a feeling that they are thinking about that doesn't fit into one of these three categories? Okay, so I'm not seeing anybody raise a hand. We have a hand with Roberto. What feeling are you thinking that doesn't fit into one of these categories or you need help trying to figure out where it fits in, Roberto? Um, maybe not so much how it fits in, but uh, just speaking to the effect of joy. Um, this is a conversation I've had with other people. The variation, or not the variation, but the separation between happiness and joy, where uh, I was sharing with people that joy is more of a, a mental state and happiness is more of an emotional state. And um, a couple of friends and I had conversation back and forth about how they, they thought it was almost one and the same. And I would say, well, they're just a little bit more, more separate. And um, we didn't really come to a, a common agreement on that because they still had their point of view and I still had mine. Um, if you could speak just a little bit to the effect of happiness and uh, joy. Sure. So we can have happiness and still have ill will, right? So we can be happy that an enemy, something bad has happened to an enemy. So this is like happiness that still has ill will. But someone who's attained Nibbana is no longer going to have ill will. So they're going to have joy, which is a mental state. And then with that joy, there's going to be feelings of happiness, but it's, it's it, the joyful mental state, the permanent mental state of joy is, is persistent and permanent where this temporary happiness comes and goes. The other thing that I usually point out to people is if happiness is the goal in life, and that's what we should all be working towards, then we would expect people like professional comedians to have the best life on earth because they're always telling jokes, they're always laughing, they're always happy. But they're not. They're not always laughing. They're not always happy. What happens is people whose minds holds on to the happiness and dwells in that happiness, because that's impermanent, the mind then moves to sadness 
in despair, in depression. And this is why we've seen a certain number of professional comedians that commit suicide. Because when the curtain falls, then the mind becomes depressed or uh, sad and so forth. So if happiness is the goal and happiness is permanent and that's what everyone should be striving for, then we would expect that professional comedians are kind of like, all right, well, I'm kind of done because I've got happiness. I can always maintain this everlasting happiness, but they can't. And this is why their mind goes from the happiness over to sadness and despair. So the joyful mental state, it's a permanent mental state where there's joy. You don't need to be laughing. You don't need to be cutting up. You don't have a mind that's pulling and dwelling for the happiness. It's joyful without condition. When we're happy, there's some condition that's made us happy. I'm happy because I got a new iPhone. I'm happy because I got a new car. I'm happy because I got a new girlfriend. I'm happy because I got a new job. And that's why the happiness is impermanent because it's based on a condition. There's a certain condition that's creating the happiness. But the joyful mental state that's permanent with Nibbana is there's no condition that's creating that. There's just joy because you're joyful. There's no object and there's no condition that is preceding that joyful mental state. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, yes, it does very much. Um, I, I definitely could have used some of those talking points when I was sharing with them. Um, but that, when we do discuss again, that, that would definitely be part of the uh, discussion. Thank you. Yeah, so happiness is impermanent because it's based on conditions. It's based on the condition of a car, a job. Somebody said something nice to me. They complimented my clothes. So therefore, the mind is happy. It's based on a condition. And when those conditions are gone, the happiness leaves. But the joyful mental state that's permanent, it's not based on any condition. It's the, the enlightened mind has eliminated all the conditions and it's just joyful because it's joyful. This is the unenlightened mind. It experiences discontentness, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Now we move into the third universal truth, which is the universal truth of non-self. What this universal truth is describing is the Buddhist teachings on non-self. This is typically a talk that people understand more and more as they progress in practice, but let's just kind of cover it here and then any questions that you guys have, I'm willing to dive into. Essentially what the Buddha is saying is, in the unenlightened state, we walk around with this concept of a self in the mind, that we feel that David is sitting here, and Roberto is there, and Max is there, and Carol is there, and Bill is there, and Amina is there, and we actually have this permanent self. And when we get these names and we start identifying with these names, we have a certain self-identity, a certain self-image, certain amount of ego gets created in the mind. And we have this concept in the unenlightened state of a permanent self. And what he says is this permanent self essentially gets in the way and it inhibits us from realizing the true enlightened mind because we're holding on, we're attached 
to this self-image, we're attached to this identity, we're attached to this ego and holding on to it, and it inhibits us from having open relationships. We then work to try to fulfill this never-ending craving for the self and the ego, this identity, this image. So therefore, if somebody says something that is displeasing to the mind, now the ego gets hurt. And now the mind experiences discontentedness. If somebody says something displeasing about our hairstyle or our clothes, because we're attached to this self-image, then the mind becomes discontent because we're holding on to this permanent self, this concept of a permanent self. So it's only when we eradicate, dissolve, and eliminate this concept of a self that we actually can move into the enlightened state where we no longer feel discontent based on this concept of a self. Because if there's a self, it will have discontentedness. We will look out for pleasant things. We will look out for painful things. We will feel good when someone's saying pleasant things to us. We will feel bad when someone's saying painful things to us. And the mind basically fluctuates and becomes discontent because of this self. And when we eliminate this self, we can then attain a more enlightened mind. And even to get to the first stage of enlightenment, we need to eliminate this concept of a self. And one of the ways that you know that this is truth, that there is no permanent self, is two things that I usually guide students to do. The first one is think back over the years about how you looked at yourself. How did you envision yourself when you were a child, when you were a teenager, when you were a young adult, when you were a middle-aged adult? You had a certain image of who you thought you were. And if somebody asked you to describe yourself at each of those stages in life, the description of yourself would have been different at each of those stages of life. And if we would have talked to people around you at each of those stages of life, what you described as who you are would have been different than the people around you. They would have described you in a different way. So essentially your description of who you are as a self has constantly changed over the years because there is no permanent self. So this self that you're holding in the mind has been constantly changing. This is non-self. There is no permanent self. So this is one way that you can investigate non-self is to see that you've kept looking at yourself in different ways throughout every stage of your life. The other way that you can reflect on this and investigate non-self is you can ask yourself, and I'll ask you, where is Roberto? Where is Max? Where is Bill? Where is Carol? Where is Amina? Where are you? Well, normally when I ask a student this, they will point to the chest, right? So they point. I say, where's David? They point. And I say, okay, well, you just pointed to a shirt, right? You just pointed to, you just pointed to a shirt. So let's take off the shirt. Where's David? And they point again to the chest. I was okay, you just pointed to some skin. Let's get rid of that skin. Where's David? 
And then they're kind of thinking for a little bit and they point again. And I say, no, you just pointed to some muscle and some bones. So let's get rid of those. Now, where's David? And then they point again. I say, well, you just pointed to a bunch of organs, some muscle tissue, some organs, some fluid, some different things, some lungs. Let's rip those out. Now, where is David? And essentially, if you keep asking yourself, where is Roberto? Where is Carol? Where is Amina? Where is Bill? Where is, where is Max? What you're going to come up with is Max doesn't exist. David doesn't exist. This name that we've been given at birth was essentially given to us in order to make it easy for people to refer to this body in this mind, in this existence. So the mind that is now currently here, it exists with this body, but it's not permanent. There is no permanent self. So I want to just pause and see if there's any questions from you guys. I have a question, David, and this is about the teaching of non-self. It, does it stretch to, uh, to all things? In other words, we, 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 see, we tend to see the world in terms of entities. We have me, the chair I'm sitting on, the birds outside, and actually, those are ideas. You know, what's really happening is an experience. We experience these things in a certain way. We experience something. Uh, but this, this thing we call self is really just um, an idea born out of a kind of conglomerate of experience. And so does the teaching of non-self, do you think in the way that the Buddha originally meant it, was he only talking about this literally this idea of self, non-self as an individual, me, I, mine, or was he also talking about everything being um, our kind of confusion between entities and experiences, these ideas of things which we take as something real, but actually it's just an experience. These things that you're noticing based on exploring the teaching of non-self is kind of an extension of non-self. So the Buddha taught that there is no self in that this, what he described as this conceit of I am, right, needs to be eradicated because it leads to problems, right? But he didn't necessarily, at least in the teachings that I have, he didn't describe what all those problems are. He just described that this concept of non-self needs to be eradicated. And I'll just kind of continue with the line of thinking that you're going on is when there's a self, when there's a David, then that means this phone is mine. This house is mine. My son, that is my son. This is my car. This is my book. And now when somebody does something, now that attachment is so strong because everything's mine right? Everything's mine, belongs to me, because there is a me here. So we tend to form attachments very, very deeply around the self, not just the self-image, not just the self-identity, not just the ego, but because there's a self, now everything is mine. And now when I lose the phone, the mind becomes discontent. Yes, I'm 
longing and I have this craving for the phone, but I view it as mine or like my son. There's no other way to refer to him. You know, the child that I bared, right? (laughs) My son, I say my son, but my mind knows he's not mine. He doesn't belong to me. He's his own entity. So by eradicating the self and practicing non-self, now all of a sudden, when somebody says something that's displeasing to the mind, there's nothing there. It's like going through you. It's like there's nothing there to to be discontent. Or when somebody says something uh, disrespectful to my son, I don't get angry because that's not my son. And that was just what happened. And that's the gamma. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to stand there and let someone talk in a disrespectful way. I can be polite and ask them to refrain from that disrespectful speech. But when I don't view him as mine, then the mind can remain calm and content and resolve this situation in a calm way rather than resorting to anger and frustration to try to solve this problem. So, yes, Max, I I can see where you're going with with that. Like you're thinking like, yeah, these are just experiences, these birds, this house, these different things. They're just experiences. Yeah, I agree with that. When we start assigning ownership and we start thinking that this is mine, then the mind is still holding on. And when there's a self there, when we haven't eradicated the self, when we haven't realized non-self, then the mind's going to tend to grasp and hold on more because it's going to see these things are mine. They belong to me. They're mine. So by eliminating the self, not only do you eliminate the self-identity, the self-image, eliminate the ego around that, but you eliminate this constant holding and wanting to consider everything yours and just, okay, let it be. It's not mine because there is no me. Therefore, it's not mine. So, These pronouns that we use of I, me, you, or even our names, Max, David, Roberto, these names, these pronouns are really unfitting to describe the real experience that we're having. The experience that we're having is is there's this physical body and there's this mind that is in this existence together, but it's not permanent. It's not permanently in this experience together and it will separate. And the longer that we hold on to this concept of a self in the mind, the longer the mind just keeps holding on and it's going to keep having discontentness. So we have to eliminate that concept of a self from the mind and start to view things not as these are my clothes, these are my friends, these are my parents, this is my computer. Even though you might still need to use that language a bit, but the mind has to recognize that these aren't yours. Thank you, David. I think that's a good point about language as well, because it's like our whole language structure is almost born out of an attachment-based kind of pursuit and culture. It's like it, it subtly points us towards identifying with things when actually there's no real basis for believing that I own something or that, you know, there's no, there's no universal logbook of who is like what and who owns what. And yet our language, um, because it's useful day to day, uh, seems to point to that. But yeah, that's a good, I think that's 
I'm going to find that quite useful. Right. I mean, essentially what we have here with the human body is we have essentially the skin, which is a big bag, right? It's this big bag with these bones and fluid and muscle tissue and hormones and chemicals and all these things in this big bag of skin. And we were given this name at birth so that when grandma was talking to mom and said, did Max come home from school and start his homework? And your mom's like, yeah, he's doing his homework now. He's about to go out to play, right? So they could refer to Max. Grandma couldn't say, you know, did that bag of bones, muscle, and fluid come home from school <laughs> and do his homework? So we need to be given these names and these labels in order to make it easy for people to refer to us and who we are. But the problem becomes the mind wraps into that and the mind holds on to that and the mind believes that there's a true Max and a true David that's actually sitting here talking when in reality it's just two consciousness. It's this mind and that mind interacting with each other and using the physical body to produce sound and movements so that we can communicate. So there is no Max, there isn't a David, it's just two consciousness interacting with each other and using the physical body as a vehicle to be able to do that. Yep. Yes, got it. So this concept okay. of, a, of a self needs to be eradicated and it's something that you normally get to as you get closer and closer to enlightenment and as you start to progress through the four jhanas. And when you start hitting these jhanas, there's usually quite a bit of bliss involved uh, in that. And there's other qualities of, of mind that are beneficial when you start hitting the jhanas, which are four impermanent qualities of mind that are prior to the four stages of enlightenment. And if you're in touch with a teacher and you've got a relationship, your teacher will start to understand when you're hitting these four jhanas and as you're progressing through these four jhanas. And then we will start to really help you to work on this non-self. But all the way through your practice, just continue to be humble, to be peaceful, to work on dissolving the ego, never looking at yourself above or below another being. Just always look at yourself as equal to everybody. And as part of non-self, start to not view things as yours and belonging to you, including children and including relationships, including parents. These are my parents. Well, if they're your parents and they belong to you, when they die, there's going to be a lot of discontentness. Whereas if you just recognize them as these are the people who gave birth to me, I respect them as my mom and my dad, I really need to do that, but they're impermanent just like everyone else. They are going to die someday. And then the mind can gradually move to a place where it doesn't experience discontentness upon death. But you need to practice more and more. All right, so with the three universal truths, we've got impermanence, we've got discontentedness, and we've got non-self. These are the three universal truths. And I taught you all of that so that I can teach you the Four Noble Truths. And as we talk about the Four Noble Truths, I'm going to ask you guys to participate at a given time 
to help me hear a story from you and to kind of bring these teachings to life a little bit. So the first noble truth, all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. All unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. So if you're experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, a lot of happiness, a lot of excitement, boredom, loneliness, shyness, these type of things, then you know your mind is unenlightened. No big deal. There's lots of unenlightened people in the world. First noble truth is the mind is experiencing discontentedness because it's unenlightened. It's experiencing these impermanent mental states because there's conditions that are creating them. And part of this practice is removing those conditions so that the mind isn't moving through these impermanent mental states of discontentedness so that you can attain this permanent mental state of enlightenment or nibbana. Right? So the first noble truth, all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. The second noble truth, you cause your discontentedness by craving, by desire, by attachment for everything to be permanent when things are impermanent. So I'm going to go through this a few times and I'm going to add some more meaning to it. And then I'm going to ask for some information from you guys. You cause your own discontent mind. So you cause the anger. You cause the frustration. You cause the guilt, the shame, the fears, the boredom, the loneliness, the happiness, the excitement. You are causing it because the mind has craving, desire, attachment. Because the mind has this longing with a strong eagerness. The mind is longing for something. It's craving something. It has this desire. It has this attachment. It has this wanting, this expectation. It's craving something with a strong eagerness. And essentially what it's craving is it's essentially craving permanence when everything is impermanent. So the cause of the discontent mind is craving, desire, attachment. The mind is craving having this strong eagerness and wanting something when everything is impermanent. So let me give you an example and then I'll ask you for some examples. If you're in a relationship where you've been with a particular partner at the beginning of the relationship, it's very great, right? The relationship is usually really wonderful. You experience a lot of great feelings early on in a relationship. You guys go out for coffee, you go to the park, you go to the movies. Uh, you just want to spend time with each other. You're just interested to get to know each other. And during this time frame, the relationship is so wonderful and so blissful. Well, over time, what happens is you have more and more happy experiences with this person and the mind craves this happiness. It craves this excitement that you have with this person. And the mind starts having this longing, 
this strong eagerness. And it wants to be with this person because you're happy when you're with this person. The mind starts to form this mental attachment, this longing, this eagerness for this relationship and for this person to be in a relationship with you. Well, for one reason or another, the relationship ends. Either you guys have an argument, so you leave, or you just decide to move to different parts of the world, or one of you die first because the relationship was impermanent. Then the mind becomes discontent. The mind becomes angered, maybe sad, maybe bored or lonely. It's not because the other person left you, because that's a universal truth. We knew that that was going to happen, right? The mind wasn't aware of it because it's not awakened. But that person was going to leave you. The problem is, is that the mind wanted to hold on to it permanently. The mind was grasping. The mind was holding. The mind had this strong eagerness, this longing for this other person. And when that became impermanent, because it is impermanent, that's when the mind became discontent with sadness, loneliness, anger, frustration, whatever it is. So essentially, you cause your own mind to be discontent because you allowed it to have this longing, this strong eagerness, this wanting, this craving, this attachment for permanence. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not a bad person because the mind's become sad or angry or frustrated. It's just that the mind is untrained. It doesn't have the wisdom to understand that it's causing its own discontentness. We walk around prior to getting exposure to these teachings, oftentimes thinking that everyone else is making me angry. I'm angry because that person didn't do what I expected them to do. Or that person's making me angry because they left me. Or I'm frustrated because I didn't get my coffee. Or I'm frustrated because things didn't go the way I wanted them to go. Right? And we tend to blame other people for this frustration, for this anger, for this sadness, for this loneliness. When in reality, we're creating it ourselves because the mind is trying to hold on. It's grasping. It's wanting and craving this permanence while everything is impermanent. So this relationship that ended, we actually caused the sadness and anger ourselves. Whether they left after six months or six years or 60 years, one of us died first. The mind was still craving permanence. Now we all know that everybody has to die. Like we all know that everyone has to die but when the person dies, if the mind's craving permanence and hasn't been trained, then the mind's going to be sad because it's craving permanence and it's holding on. Even though intellectually we know that everyone needs to die, the mind is still holding on and craving that permanence. So this is one example that I give with relationships. Let me give you another, another example and then I'll ask you guys for, for something. If you buy a car or if I buy a car and I sign the papers and I drive this car, this red sports car, 
And now when I drive it down the street, I feel great. I have this self-image. I have this self-identity. I have this ego. All my friends look at me and I'm like, wow, look at this. I've got this wonderful new car. Then I park it and I go into the store. And when I come out, there's a scratch on the, on the car. Well, some people seeing that scratch are going to get enraged. They're going to get angry. They're going to get frustrated. Some people might even go looking for the person who did this scratch and caused them harm, right? They're going to take this anger and frustration really, really far. The reason why that person got angry or frustrated is not because of the scratch. They got angry because their mind is craving permanence. They were expecting that car to look beautiful permanently. And they started identifying with that car. They had a certain ego around it. So this person's mind is causing their own discontentedness. And the way that you know that's true is because a, a second person, let's just say Max could come out and see that same scratch on his car. And he's like, wow, thank goodness I got insurance. I'm going to take my car and get it fixed tomorrow or next week or whatever. Right. So in the first example, this person reacted with anger and frustration. Their mind became discontent because it was attached to the car. It was craving permanence. The second example, the person came out, recognized impermanence and decided, you know what, I'll just go get this fixed when I have time later this week. And this person responded to the situation rather than reacting. You see how the mind causes its own discontentness? What I would like to do is ask you guys for an example in your life of a recent time where you were maybe frustrated or angry or annoyed. And when you describe that situation, if you are not already seeing your attachment and why the mind was discontent, I will help you to see how you're causing it yourself. Does someone have an example they'd like to share? Over to you, Roberto. Maybe about a year ago, uh, this is right before I started or began reading the teachings, um, I had this uh, uh, this issue of always being upset with, you know, I think was out of place and progressive, a little frustrated and progressive, got more frustrated and angry. Uh, even reached a point where I would expect the house to be dirty by the time I got home. I would already be worked up about it. And I was just so in my head about how dirty the house was or was going to be that once I came in the door, it was very unpleasant for myself and for everybody else. And um, it's interesting because the uh, second noble truth, discontentedness is, you know, caused by our own attachments. And I was creating this issue for myself. And um, after the readings, and especially that noble truth, the second one, uh, it was like, you know, in the face, I suddenly realized, oh, well, it's not the messy house that's getting me upset. It's me causing my upset and um, quickly realized that uh, I just need to look at it a different way. It gave me another lens to look at and um, quickly realized that I don't have to be upset about things being out of place because honestly, this, this coffee cup is gonna be anywhere at any given time. It just happens to not be where I would expect it to be. And, <laughs> Very good, Roberto. That, you know, things are where they're going to be. It's just I don't have to expect them to be in the exact place that I would want them to be. So, um, yeah, 
just everyone has a messy house at some point. You don't have to be upset about it at this point. That's good, Roberto. You're seeing it yourself is that, yeah, the mind was expecting and craving and had this certain longing, this certain strong eagerness, and there was certain expectation of how things were supposed to be in the house. And things are never going to be that way because that's permanence. Your mind had this permanent image of what the house should look like. And then when impermanence shook that up, that's when the mind said, hey, I don't like this. I'm going to be discontent and I'm going to start being frustrated or upset. I used to have this exact same thing. I used to want a house to be a certain way. And uh, you realize that, yeah, I'm causing this myself. And you gave a great example of, yeah, this cup is going to be any number of different places. There's not just one permanent place for this cup. So perfect. You're seeing that your mind is causing the discontentness. So that's an excellent example. Okay, so I'm going to slowly read this. My daughter does not enjoy doing her homework, and I get frustrated sometimes getting her to do it. She told me the other day that when I raised my voice that I didn't have good karma. <laughs> I love that she used the teachings. Yeah, that's what you're going to notice with the children is they're going to, the more you teach them about the teachings, they're going to use it uh, to point out to you when you're not practicing well. So essentially, you know, the Buddhist teachings aren't about what's right or wrong, right? So like Amina's intention is wonderful. She would like to have her daughter do her homework, right? This is great. It's good intentions. It's great, wonderful thing to encourage our children to do homework. So that's why the Buddhist teachings aren't about what's right or wrong. And Amina's not wrong, have her daughter do her homework. But the thing that Amina's facing is that she wants her daughter to do the homework. She expects her daughter to do the homework. And because she's not doing it when she expects, that's when her voice becomes a little bit harsh. And that's when her daughter probably is more, even more reluctant to do her homework because her voice becomes elevated. So Amina is perfectly correct as a parent to be interested for her daughter to ha do her homework, but she needs to be interested in her daughter doing her homework. She needs to motivate her daughter to do her homework and have a goal and an objective for her daughter to do her homework rather than wanting or craving or having this longing or strong eagerness to do it. That's the difference. And that leads us and is a good transition into the third noble truth. Because the third noble truth is the beauty about understanding that we are responsible for our own discontent mind, which is essentially the second noble truth. The beauty about the second noble truth that we're responsible for our own discontent mind is that the third noble truth is that we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the attachment, by eliminating the strong eagerness, by eliminating the wanting, the craving, the attachment, the expectation, the desire, by eliminating that and pursuing things as an interest or a goal or an objective, then you can eliminate the discontent mind. So essentially what Gautama Buddha is bringing your mind to realize is that we don't have to go around and train 7.5 billion people to do things our way. Because if everyone else is the reason why we're angry, if it's my son's fault that I'm angry, if it's my neighbor's fault that I'm angry, then that means I have to train them to do things my way. And as long as they please me, then I'll be okay. 
That means you have to have an enormous training program to train 7.5 billion people in the world. And there's more and more people that are being born every day that you're going to have to have an enormous training program to get everybody to do things your way. Or what the Buddha is saying is you only need to train one mind. You only need to train one. And that's the only one that you can train anyway, because you can't train 7.5 billion people. It's impossible. But you can train your mind. You can train one person's mind, and that's, and that's yours. So by training your mind to eliminate attachment, by training your mind to eliminate craving, training your mind not to have this longing, this strong eagerness, this wanting, these expectations, by training your mind not to have that, then the mind can be calm, content, and peaceful. Right? So the beauty in the second noble truth that we all cause our own discontent mind, we're responsible for it, is the third noble truth, is that we can eliminate it. This is why you can attain enlightenment. This is why you can attain nibbana, because you're the only one you need to train. You don't need to train everyone else. You only need to train your own mind. This is why you can eliminate the discontent mind because you're the only one that needs to be trained. And that's why you're on in this classroom. That's why you're listening to this live stream. That's why you're listening to this podcast is because you're interested to learn how to train this mind to eliminate the discontentness and attain this permanent mental state of enlightenment, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So you can train the mind. That's what the third noble truth is about. By eliminating the mind's longing, the eagerness, the strong wanting and expectations, we can eliminate the discontentness. The fourth noble truth is that the way leading to the complete elimination of the discontent mind is to practice the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is a separate teaching that we'll cover next week where there's eight steps, this is your life practice. This is how you eliminate 100% of the discontent mind, okay? But just going back through these again, the first noble truth, all unenlightened beings will experience discontentness of mind. All unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. So you know that you're unenlightened because you still experience discontentness. The second noble truth, you cause your own discontent mind by craving, by clinging, by attachment, by desire, by having this strong eagerness, this longing, this wanting for things to be your way. And when things aren't your way, the mind becomes discontent. And then the third noble truth, you can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the mind's craving the mind's longing, the mind's wanting for things to be a certain way. You can eliminate that from the mind by training it. Therefore, you're training the mind to just let go, to not hold things so tightly. And you know that this third noble truth is correct because every time your mind becomes discontent, every time it becomes angry, sad, frustrated, or whatever it is, irritated. Whenever your mind gets that way, 
it's that way for as long as you decide to hold on to it. As soon as you say, you know what? I don't care about the iPhone anymore. It's broken. I'm going to go down to the store tomorrow and just buy me a new one. As soon as that mind makes that shift, you've eliminated the mental attachment and the mind becomes content. So as long as you get frustrated and angry because this iPhone is broken, as long as you're longing for it to be permanent, as long as you're like, oh, my iPhone is broken. I got to pay more money. How did a phone get broken? Oh, geez, what happened? As long as your mind's doing that and it's shaking, the mind is discontent. But as soon as you transition that to, you know what? Yeah, my phone's broken. It's impermanent. I'm going to go down to the store and get a new one tomorrow. The mind's content because you've eliminated the attachment. You've eliminated that longing for permanence. And that's how you know every situation. The reason why your mind may be content right now at this moment is because at this moment, your mind doesn't have any strong longing or eagerness. You're just sitting and talking and listening to this talk and having a discussion. But as soon as the mind has a longing for eagerness, a longing for permanence, it's going to be discontent. But when you let it go, the mind becomes content. That's the third noble truth. So you can see your mind attain this peaceful, calm, serene mental state, even if it's temporary at this point, because it's not fully enlightened, even if it's temporary, where now for the last one hour, maybe your mind has been calm and content. That's because it hasn't had any strong eagerness in this particular hour, right? Because you've eliminated any attachments for right now. But now you have to go through life with the fourth noble truth. The fourth noble truth, you have to develop this life practice where now all through your life, you're training the mind to eliminate discontentness through eliminating attachment, through training the mind using the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. It's the path to Nibbana. It's the training that every single mind needs to learn and practice in order to attain enlightenment. And when you train the mind using the Eightfold Path, it will slowly, gradually become more calm, more content, more peaceful, more serene, more joyful because you're removing all the conditions from the mind, right? And the beauty about the Eightfold Path and learning the Four Noble Truths is the very first step of the Eightfold Path is called right view. What right view is, is right view is having the right view of the world. The right view, and the reason why Gautama Buddha discussed the Four Noble Truths first as his first discourse, the right view of the world is you are causing your own discontentness. You are responsible for your own discontent mind. When you accept responsibility for your own discontent mind and you work to train it to eliminate discontentness and stop blaming other people for your discontent mind, then you have right view and you're practicing right view. Wrong view would be it's everyone else's fault. And you know plenty of people that are like this and you've been like this in the past because I was like this in the past. 
I used to blame other people for my anger and frustration, right? We were all like that at one time in the past. So that's wrong view. So moving away from wrong view, blaming other people for our discontent mind and moving towards right view is accepting responsibility for your own mind and your own discontent mind. That's right view. And that's why this is the first step of the Eightfold Path. And this is why the Buddha talked about the Four Noble Truths first. Because if somebody's trying to undergo training in the Buddhist teachings to, tra- to, to attain this peaceful, calm mental state, but they think the reason why they're angry is because of everyone else, how could you ever train your mind? Because it's everyone else's fault. So that's why it's the first step of the Eightfold Path, and that's why it's his first discourse. So essentially what he was saying to those monks who were hanging themselves upside down from trees and starving their body is he was saying, no, your discontent mind isn't because of the body. Your discontent mind isn't because of those people over there talking in a way that is displeasing to you. The discontent mind is because of this longing, this strong eagerness, this craving, this holding on, this wanting for things to be permanent when everything is impermanent. And this is why it really revolutionized the Buddhist approach to training the mind because he was able to explain to people that they are causing their own discontent mind. I would imagine when those people were hanging themselves upside down from trees and they were starving themselves, they were probably becoming more and more discontent because the more you starve the body, the more frustrated you're going to be because you're going to feel more hunger. And in an unenlightened state, I imagine those people who are hanging themselves upside down from the trees were probably craving Nibbana more and more and more and more. And therefore, they became more and more discontent. The more craving that we have, the more discontent we become. And this is why the very foundation of these practices is breathing mindfulness meditation in order to train the mind to eliminate this holding on, this grasping, this clinging, this holding on. And that's also why we practice generosity, sharing our time, sharing our effort, sharing our resources, our money, sharing our food, things that we have. By practicing generosity in daily life, you're training the mind to just let go, let it be. Whenever you're holding on to something tightly, it's going to cause discontentedness. So you have to bring the mind to the middle where, yes, you're working and you're making money and you're using that money to sustain your life. But if there's things that you would like to contribute to in the world that you share it, or yes, I've acquired this food and this food is enough for me to eat, but I can share it with other people or yes, I have all these clothes and I need these clothes to sustain my bodily temperature, but I don't need 500 pairs of shoes or I don't need a hundred pair of shoes because that's just going to make the mind work and work and work and work and work to keep fulfilling that craving and keep buying all of these shoes and clothes and cars and that craving. It just never ends. It just continually keeps going further and further. So the number one problem that the Buddha discovered is the mind has craving, desire, attachment, this longing, this strong eagerness. So the number one solution is breathing mindfulness meditation 
in generosity. That will help you to train the mind to not hold on so tightly. Any questions? Uh, no questions as such. I have a, I have a comment though, just that um, I think this is a really valuable teaching that discontentedness also includes pleasant sensations and things that are our culture society would normally laud, you know, would normally encourage uh, being more, doing more, having more. You know, we think these are things that are really worth doing. Um, and, and whilst most people probably wouldn't subscribe to the, to the ascetic way of life, at least not in the way that it was in the Buddha's time, there's a lot of people who are really pursuing hedonism and and just not seeing how that is actually for discontentedness i think that's a very relevant yeah lesson. yeah Ad, adding to that you know what we're kind of taught in society through capitalism and other things is that wealth equals happiness right and and everybody's craving wealth well all the wealthy people in the world there's plenty of people who are wealthy that are discontent right they're, they're, they have craving, they have desires, they have anger, they have frustration, they have boredom, they have loneliness. There's plenty of wealthy people who end up committing suicide. There's plenty of wealthy people who end up addicted to drugs. And there's plenty of wealthy people who are also calm and content and peaceful as well, right? But there's plenty of wealthy people who are sad and discontent. So that's how we know that wealth and materialism doesn't lead to permanent peaceful of mind if we just crave and crave and crave and crave money we need money in order to afford things in order to to facilitate our life for food and clothing and things like this but if we always are pursuing wants instead of our needs then the mind is just going to constantly want more and want more and want more and want more i think roberto has a question i've seen him put his hand up a couple times or maybe a comment. You have something to say, Roberto? Sure, I was just going to ask you to um, give the the four noble truths again. Just the, the understanding of one, two, three, four uh, uh, in order. Or, yeah. Sure. The first noble truth: all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. The second: we cause our discontent mind by craving, attachment, desire for things to be permanent when everything is impermanent. The third, we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the craving, the desire, the attachment. And the fourth noble truth is the way leading to the complete elimination of the discontent mind is the Eightfold Path, is to practice the Eightfold Path. So essentially what the Buddha is saying is the origin of the problem is that all discontentness is experienced by unenlightened beings. The cause is the attachment, the craving, the mental longing. The elimination is the elimination of the discontent mind by eliminating craving, clinging, attachment. And then the way forward to completely eliminate the discontent mind is the Eightfold Path. So he describes the origin, the cause, the elimination, and the way to completely eliminate the problem in four simple statements. 
Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I've always been trying to look for uh, a way to concisely and quickly share this with my with my children without going into too much detail and losing their attention. Um, that, that's good. That's the, good. The best way to do it with children, Roberto, is at the moment when their mind is discontent, that's the best time to teach because it's a teachable moment. So if they walk into the living room and their toy is broken laying on the floor and they start crying because the toy is broken and you can say, okay, you know, I don't know your children's name, but I'll say my son. Okay. Okay. Bailan, you know, sit down for a moment. See, your mind is discontent, right? This is discontentness. You're crying. You're sad. This is discontentness. Yeah, I'm I'm discontent, Daddy. I'm crying. I'm discontent. Ah, my toy, my toy. I wanted my toy. It's broken. Okay, that's discontentness. Now, what causes your discontentness is because your mind is craving for this toy to be permanent. But everything is impermanent. Your toy isn't going to be permanent. You're going to lose it. It's going to break. Someone might steal it. It's not permanent. You're causing your discontent mind because you're craving for it to be permanent. I know, Daddy. Well, I don't know. It's just broken and it's broken. All right. Like you're just that's what you're gonna get from your from your child. So in that moment when they're when they're crying, not when they're hysterical, but when they've calmed down just a little bit, that's a good teachable moment. Or immediately after they stopped crying, right? And you say, okay. Now, Bailan, now that you're done crying, let me explain to you why you are crying. Let me help you to see this. And you just take your time to patiently talk to them and show them step by step. And, you, and they say, no, I'm crying because my toy is broken. So if your toy wasn't broken, you wouldn't be discontent, right? No, I wouldn't be. Well, see, that's because your mind wants it to be permanent. So you can use like very simple examples, real world examples in the heat of the moment when they're actually discontent and that's when their ears are kind of perked up and they'll be willing to kind of listen to you more at that time. Or like if they want to go outside, right? And they really want to go outside and you or your wife don't, you know, tell them no, they can't go outside and then they get angry because they can't go outside. You can sit them down and show them, see, your mind wants to go outside. You're craving to go outside. You have this desire to go outside, this longing, this strong eagerness. And because you want it and now you can't have it, that's why the mind's discontent. Mommy and daddy didn't make you discontent. It's not our fault. We know that right now it's dark outside and it's not a good time for you to go outside. So we're giving you guidance as parents that now is not a good time to go out. But because you want it so badly, that's why your mind is discontent. So stop wanting to go outside and go pick up a book or go do this or, you know, give them other suggestions. You know, go do your homework or go watch TV or go do, you know, give them other suggestions to move their mind past wanting going outside and move it into something else. And you can say, you know, Bailan, as soon as you decide that you would rather watch TV than go outside, your mind's going to be content because you're going to eliminate that attachment to going outside, that craving to go outside. And now it's going to be content with watching TV. But as long as you hold on and as long as your mind craves to go outside, 
it's going to be discontent. So in the heat of the moment like that, it'll be really good time to talk to your ch children because those are real teachable moments. So we have a question from Amina on Facebook. Amina asks, how can we discern the difference between non-self and accepting responsibility for having right view? Because right view comes from each of us and is, is therefore personal. So how can we discern the difference between non-self on one hand, but also the need for us as an individual to have right view? I'm not sure if I'm understanding the connection between those two because they're so different, right? Like non-self and, and right view. I'm not sure yes. I'm understanding Amina's question. Maybe I, maybe I didn't read it properly, but I, th I think the way I interpret it is that if there is no self, then how can we as individual have right view? How do we take responsibility if there's no self? Oh, okay. So somebody asked this question another way. They say, if there is no I, then who's training the mind? right like it's kind of along those lines of questioning like there is no self so who's having right view well there is this mind and there is this body if there is this mind and there is this body then who's training the mind and, and who's got right view well we say no self but essentially there's no permanent self there is a mind and there is a, a body they've come together for this existence but I almost view them as like a third entity. And I talked with Robert about this before when he was kind of getting frustrated that he was frustrated a little bit. And I was saying, you got to kind of have to laugh at yourself, but there is no self, right? So you're just laughing at the mind, you know, instead of my mind, I think the mind, instead of my body, I think the body, it's the body. If you read the book, all through the book, I you constantly use the language, the body, the mind. I never use your body or your mind. You have to train your mind or your body. I always say the body, the mind, the ego, as if it's like a third entity. So this mind, this mind, wherever it is, this mind has to understand that it's causing its own discontentness. This mind has to gain that wisdom that it's causing its own discontentness. There is no self. There is no permanent self. We got to eradicate that. But this mind has to understand it's causing its own discontentness and it can eliminate its discontentness. That's right view. Bill had a question as we were getting started that relates to chapter three. I see he's still in the virtual classroom. Would you be able to ask that question again so that everybody can hear it and then I can answer that one? My question was about, it came up in chapter three and um, you were writing that one of the benefits of, of enlightenment is that we become more open and trusting of all beings. And then towards the end of the chapter, you talked about how it's a good idea to have more than one teacher uh, so we don't create, have this attachment to the same person, right? Uh, and then you, you go into some detail about different types of questions um, to, 
to discern. You know, you help you help talk about discerning who is a good who would be a good teacher. A uh, good teacher would be one that doesn't claim to be enlightened and, and kind of puff him and him or herself up with the ego, right? Um, so how do you? Can you just talk a little bit about um, reconciling that with we become open and trusting, balancing that out with having good judgment and dis good discernment when we're choosing a teacher? Sure. What I suggest for people, and I think it's later in the book, is I suggest for people to be to find one teacher to start out with and spend time, a good amount of time with that teacher and learning their teachings and seeing the, any progress that they're making with that particular teacher. And as long as you're making progress, as long as you see that the teachings are, are clear, that you've got a good relationship, you're seeing the same things that they're teaching, you're seeing them modeling that in their practice. Essentially, they're, they're a role model for their teachings. You know, they're not teaching to have gentle speech, but yet they're talking harshly to everybody around them, right? So if you're seeing that their teachings and their practice are connected and in sync, and you're seeing that your mind and your understanding is continuing to improve, there's no reason to go out and find a second teacher at that moment. Stick with that one teacher and keep making progress with that person more and more and more. If at any point you feel like, you know what, I've learned everything there is to learn here and I'm progressing, maybe I need to look for another teacher. Any teacher who has attained Nibbana, if you're like, if, if you had another teacher, they shouldn't have any problem with that whatsoever because they shouldn't be attached to you if they've attained Nibbana. So... I encourage people to look around after they've been studying with me for a while is to look around at other things. So a lot of people, or not a lot, but the people who study with me closely, they probably consider me their primary teacher. And then they might look at YouTube videos from different monks or they might read books from different people. And then they actually have somebody to reflect on that with. So like Max has done this, Chris isn't on the call, Amina has done this, different people have done it at different times. Maybe even you've done it too, Bill, where you said, hey, I read this or I saw this or I was involved in this meditation session and they were talking about this. How do you feel about that, David? So by having a primary teacher and kind of developing with that primary teacher, you get to see that that person's teachings are leading your mind to a better and better place. But then you also have somebody that you trust that you can then reflect with that they're not going to be disturbed just because you sat on another talk with another teacher. They're not going to be disturbed if you go to a retreat with another teacher. They shouldn't right. be disturbed if you pick up a book of another teacher. They should be willing to talk about that stuff with you and then help you to reflect on it through their teachings. So oftentimes people will read other books or go to other teachers and then I might disagree with a certain portion of what that other teacher is saying, but I can very politely explain why I disagree and help them understand. So the trusting part is important that you trust your teacher so that you can share things in your mind. I mean, 
the deep held things that are deeply rooted in our mind that we're eliminating as part of this path, you know, you may not tell your best friend, you may not tell your parents, you may not tell your life partner, but you need to feel comfortable to tell your teacher. Uh, I've gave some examples before where I've had students tell me on a first or second visit, they've said, you know, David, I watch pornography five times a week. I masturbate 10 times a day and I want to eliminate this. And they know that by sharing that with me, I'm not going to go out and share it with a bunch of other people. I'm not judging them for that. I'm not going to make them feel guilty or ashamed. It's just like, okay, well, if that's where you are, then let's improve that. And one of the things that I usually share is the reason why I don't judge people is because I've done all that stuff, right? I, I've, I, I watched pornography in the past. I used to masturbate 10, 20 times a day when I was certain ages. I cheated on girlfriends. I, I killed animals when I worked on a farm. I've hit people and gotten into fights. Every student that I interact with, when they share with me like, oh yeah, David, this is what's going on in my life. In my mind, how could I ever judge them? Because I was doing those same things as well. So the trusting part is building up a relationship where you can tell the teacher in a private setting or otherwise some of the deepest held things that are in your mind so that then they can give you advice on how to release those things and how to eliminate those things. And any teacher that's really working with you that, is, that, that you feel has attained enlightenment, they should have advice of how they eliminated those same things from their life yeah. and, and be able to guide you and help you along the way. And that only comes through trust. Um, and, and I would say you've got to give, you know, you got to give a teacher a few weeks, a few months um, to, to build up the relationship and for you to feel comfortable to have open talks. And this is where like sometimes students will invite me out to dinner and have one-on-one talks. Max did that several times here in Chiang Mai. Or they might call me up on a video chat and they just share with me openly. You know, they build up a relationship and feel comfortable doing that. Then the guidance that I'm able to give you is more and more specific to you rather than talking like real generally. If we're in a one-on-one conversation, I can speak very directly and very specifically based on your particular problem. Because you need to trust all beings, and you need to re- reduce the ego, one of the ways to work on doing that is by accepting a teacher into your life and saying, yeah, I need guidance. That helps bring the ego down a little bit. And by trusting your teacher, it helps you to see that, yeah, I can trust this person and that's going to benefit me by doing so. Because you can't just go from where you are now to flipping a switch and just trusting everyone in the world. It doesn't work that way. So what you do is you kind of work one by one and you have these real healthy relationships. And the more and more you do that, the more you can see that you can literally trust all people um, and that you can have good, wholesome relationships with all people. And the relationship that you have with your teacher, if they've attained Nibbana, they'll never get angry at you. They'll never speak harshly with you. They'll never guilt you into anything. They'll never make you feel shameful. They'll never, well, you make yourself feel shameful, but they're not going to say things that that are shameful. They're not going to make you fear. So that relationship that you form with them 
can then be a model of how you then model that same relationship with other people in your life. Because your teacher isn't, shouldn't, if they're enlightened, shouldn't have any expectations of you. They shouldn't want anything from you. They shouldn't desire anything from you. And when you experience a relationship in that way, and you feel the contentness and the peacefulness in that relationship, and you learn how to have a relationship with non-attachment with your teacher, then you can model that with other people as well. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. As a follow-up to, to that question from Bill, today we've been discussing the, the Four Noble Truths and, and attachment. And uh, one thing I've noticed as I've gone to various events in England, and I think this is probably quite true of the West, is that attachment as a teaching is often quite underemphasized, which is peculiar because it was the first thing the Buddha taught in some sense. It was, you know, it's really all about attachment. It's the whole game. Yes. I mean, right speech and all this, it's just, this is all very important, but within the framework of eliminating attachment, it's, it's important. And, and so that, that would be a red flag for me if I, if I went to a, an event or something and, and not only was um, attachment glossed over, let's say, but maybe even attachment is actually, <laughs> they do the reverse, that you know, that there's a certain attachment in the way something is taught or uh, they encourage attachment to certain rituals, for example, uh, or, or a teacher embodies attachment in a certain way. You know, so it's, it's it's one thing to gloss over the teaching of of um, the four noble truths, but it's it's another to almost um, go go in, in in opposition to it by by demonstrating or even encouraging attachment. I think it's really important because it's the whole game is about eliminating attachment. Um, I'd, yeah, I'm interested to know your your comments on that, David. Yeah, this is a good point. Not only are the teachings of attachment not always apparent in certain Dhamma talks and certain venues that are teaching it. But if they are talking about attachment, oftentimes attachment is misunderstood, right? Some people will say, if you have a car, that's an attachment. If you have a son, that's an attachment. If you have a life partner, that's an attachment. Some people will say, those things are attachments. The possession itself isn't the attachment. The child, the life partner, those aren't attachments by themselves. Uh, it's how the mind relates to it. So you can have a car and not be attached to it, or you can have a car and be attached to it. So oftentimes, because what I observe is people moving from the Christian tradition into Buddhism, in Christianity, people teach that everyone has to be the same image of Jesus Christ, and everybody's trying to model Jesus Christ's behavior. Not everyone, but you know, some place, some venues teach this. So, what some people think is that in order to attain enlightenment, everybody has to do what the Buddha did, which is leave their family and put on robes and take up this life of asceticism which is not true because in reality the buddha the buddha left the palace but he actually didn't leave his family his wife and son came and actually spent time with him his son was the very first 
novice monk to ordain. So the Buddha ordained his son at the age of like six or eight years old. I mean, he wasn't ordained, but he became a novice. So if you ever read the teachings and you see the Buddha refer talking to Rahul, Rahul is his son. So people think that you, you know, eliminate children from your life and all of a sudden that's going to take you closer to enlightenment, but it's all about what's in the mind. So I agree with you, Max, that attachment is underemphasized. If you're, if you're working with a teacher and the teacher is like very needy, very wanting, very grasping and like, like you see a lot of holding and a lot of craving and desire, then you know this person hasn't attained enlightenment yet. And it doesn't mean you can't learn something from them, but just understand that, that whatever you do hear from them is most likely not going to be 100% truth because they haven't gotten to what the Buddha called final knowledge. When you attain the enlightenment, when you attain nibbana, it's called final knowledge. You, when you eliminate 100% of discontentness in the mind, where you no longer experience sadness, anger, frustration, boredom, all these different things, you've attained final knowledge. You know what it takes to get to final knowledge. And that's when you can say, I know the truth. And that's when that last fetter of ignorance or delusion or unknowing a true reality, the, the 10th fetter, is completely eradicated, completely eliminated because you've attained final knowledge. You've eliminated all ignorance. All, uh, you uh, essentially have wisdom. So if you're learning from somebody that has a lot of desire, a lot of craving, uh, and is just grasping at things, then they haven't attained final knowledge. So they haven't attained enlightenment. So that means whatever you hear in that, in that venue isn't going to be 100% truth. And this is why in the book that I wrote, knowing that I can't teach everybody, that's permanence. There's no way I can teach the entire world. So I know there'll be people that read this book that will never meet me ever. I encourage people in this book to seek out teachers that attain Nibbana and I gave them guidance of helping them to see how to determine if someone has attained Nibbana. Because for someone in the unenlightened mind who's never studied these teachings before, how do you determine if someone's enlightened or not? You have no idea because you don't even know what enlightenment is, let alone trying to determine if somebody else has attained it or not. So in this book, knowing that I won't be able to teach everybody, there's guidance in there to help you see if someone has or hasn't attained Nibbana, because if you're learning with someone who's attained final knowledge, then the teachings that they're giving you are going to be accurate, concise, on the money, and very, very concise and very penetrating for the mind. But if you're learning with someone who still has grasping and clinging and craving harsh speech or lies or their practice, it doesn't matter what they say, because anybody can recite what the Buddha says from a book, you want to look at their practice. How are they practicing? And if their practice is well-developed, then this person can be a good leader for you because they're modeling the behavior and the conduct that is going to lead you to enlightenment. And you're going to need that good role model in order to work your way toward enlightenment. It's not just about reading a book and reading the teachings. You need the personal guidance in the role model 
so that you can see how to model these teachings, not just read them in a book, but you can see what do they look like in real practice. So if you're studying with somebody who's attained Nibbana or enlightenment, you should see them embody and practice the teachings that they're teaching. So on a related note, Carol had asked, what about having teachers that practice from different backgrounds, such as yogis, priests, and other spiritual leaders? So this question, Carol, that you asked about different disciplines and different teachers, I always feel that, you know, all of us have had many, many teachers in our life. You know, we've had countless teachers in our life that have taught us many different things. I even consider some of my ex-girlfriends some of my best teachers that they taught me a lot of wonderful things. So there's lots of different teachers who teach us different things in life. But in terms of the Dhamma, I would say to have just one primary teacher to get started with and continue with that person and see whether you're making progress or not with that teacher. And if you're not, then move on to another teacher who you feel is there's a better connection and who's improving the quality of your mind. If you're going to learn yoga, I would say find a teacher who's teaching yoga. Or if you want to learn Jesus Christ teachings, learn, you know, find a priest that's teaching that. Where if you try to start mixing all of these things, that's where it can be very complicated for the mind to figure out. So that's why for me, when I teach, I teach just the Buddha's teachings at this point in my life and just clearly his Dhamma without inserting things from, you know, other spiritual traditions. Because if I insert Hinduism or animism or Christianity or these other things into what I'm teaching, then the mind, it, it, they can't see the path as clearly. Gautama Buddha's path, it's only illuminated and very clear and concise if the teacher is teaching it that way. If we muddy it with other things, then it becomes harder to see. So yeah, if, if you're going to learn yoga with a yogi and you're going to learn Jesus Christ teachings or Hinduism or these other things, you know, go for it and learn those things but don't try to mix it with what the Buddhist teachings. Sometimes when I sit down with students, as I'm describing enlightenment, right away they will say, oh, that's just like this in the Indian tradition, and here's what I learned in India when I was there about this mental state of, I think they call it samadhi or something like that. And they start reciting all the things that they learned from their, their yoga teacher to get to this mental state of samadhi or something like that. And what happens there is the person kind of wants to relate the things that they've already learned to what the Buddha is teaching, but then it gets very muddy and it gets very mixed. So if you are interested in awakening the mind, if you're interested in liberating the mind, and you want to do that through Gautama Buddha's teachings, or you have an interest to do that through Gautama Buddha's teachings, I would say do that through Gautama Buddha's teachings. But if you try to awaken the mind with Gautama Buddha's teachings and awaken the mind with Hinduism and awaken the mind to the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ teachings and awaken it you know, with, with uh, what do they call it, quantum physics, kind of modern day uh, language, then all of these things are going to get very mixed 
And it's going to be hard for the mind to really focus on well, what am I really supposed to be practicing here? So when I taught Thai massage in America, I used to just teach Thai massage the way that I understood it from the Thai people. And that had a really profound effect with practitioners learning and applying it in practice. Oftentimes people would come in with yoga background or acupuncture or Chinese medicine, herbal medicine, and they were trying to mix all of this stuff with Thai massage. And I would just say, okay, just do Thai massage while you're with me. If you want to mix that other stuff, mix it somewhere else. So the Buddhist teachings are the same way. Is if you want to awaken the mind, you have an interest, an objective, a goal to awaken the mind with the Buddhist teachings, just study that to awaken the mind. And then if you want to learn yoga, learn yoga with those yogis. Um, and they're doing some great things with the body that helps to condition the body and train the body. But they've got a whole spiritual component to yoga as well. Um, so all of these things are beneficial in the world. That's why we have all of these things in the world. But for me, in terms of awakening the mind, the Buddha just said it so clear, so concise, so beautiful, and so profound, but yet so simple. And because it's so simple, I can carry it with me daily, and I can see it everywhere around me where it, the more complex we make it, the more difficult it is to practice in daily life. And what I notice is when there's ego in this modern mind, we tend to want to complicate things. We tend to want to really make things difficult and complicated. And sometimes we feel the more complicated it is, somehow the more intelligent we are. But to me, the Buddhist teachings are very simple very clear, very concise, very detailed. And because they're so simple, that's what makes them so profound. Because remember, the people that he was teaching to in that region of the world, they were essentially illiterate. They didn't read and write. They didn't have a written language. So they used to come and learn with him essentially once a week, every eight days, based on the lunar schedule. They would come in, they would learn with him, and then they would go back to their life. They didn't write anything down. They didn't uh, try to make things more difficult. He made it very clear, very concise, very simple, so that when they went back to their farm or they went back to their shop, they could just easily remember what he said and practice those things in a very simple way. So that's one of the things that I tried to do in this book and what I try to do in my teaching is just make it very simple, very clear, very concise, and just keep it very clear to the Buddhist teachings so that then you can apply it in daily life. Because none of these teachings are beneficial if you can't apply it in daily life. It only is beneficial if you can apply it in daily life. And if you mix it with a lot of other things, you might not be able to apply it so easily in daily life. Carol asks, uh, but I would also like to be part of a spiritual community and what do you recommend in this regard? What I would recommend in terms of being a part of a community is to seek out a Thai temple. And you being in New York, there's, there's a number of Thai temples. Now, each temple, because of impermanence, is going to be practicing the teachings at various depths. So not every temple is going to be practicing in the same way that I'm sharing with you here in this book, but at least they're practicing some aspects of the teachings and what you're going to find are people are going to be genuinely polite and kind and friendly 
um, caring. You're going to learn about Thai culture. You're going to learn about holidays. You're going to be part of this group that maybe meets once a week or once every month. And you can show up to a venue, uh, which is the temple, and which is essentially a community center. And the more times you go there and visit it, the more times you're going to hear about these different events. And then you can start contributing if you want to be part of the community. You can, you know, bring food, you can bring water, you can help set up tables for the event, and you can start building relationships with other practitioners. And I say Thai temples just because those are the ones that I'm most familiar with. And I know that there's Thai temples all throughout the U.S. And I know Carol lives in New York in the U.S. I know that every Thai temple that I've ever been to has always been very inviting, very open, very cordial, very accepting, and always interested in just allowing me to, to be me. I never had anybody come up to me and say, are you ready to convert to Buddhism now? Or are you ready to declare yourself a Buddhist? I would just show up and people just let me be. And if I looked a little bit odd or a little bit strange or I didn't know what was going on, someone would come to me and they would say, do you need help with something? Or sometimes they would ask me, they would say, come here, can you help me with this? You're a big guy. I need you to lift this big thing of water. You know, come help me. And I'm like, oh, sure. Okay. So just being around other practitioners, Thai people are this is so part of their culture and so ingrained in their culture, the average Thai wouldn't be able to sit down and teach you the Four Noble Truths, but they're practicing the Four Noble Truths because it's part of their life. The average Thai wouldn't be able to sit down and teach you the Eightfold Path about right intention, right speech, right action, these kind of things, but they're practicing it. So they're practicing right intention, right speech, right action. So just being around other practitioners other community members who are practicing these teachings will be very beneficial for your practice because you'll have people to model after. And you can ask them questions about their practice as well. Uh, and you can ask them, you know, how they deal with it when their parents die or when their dog is unhealthy, because I know your dog was unhealthy there for a while. Um, you know, ask them, you know, how do you, how do you deal with it? And get another person's perspective you know, you can have me as kind of like your primary teacher to learn the deep teachings, but then you can have all these other people that are around you as community members that you can use them as a resource and ask them questions as well. So I definitely agree having more of a community around you will be really helpful. And I think you'll find people at these Thai communities being very open and very loving and very inviting and being very willing to share their culture and their teachings with you. David, do you see a distinction between practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings and being a Buddhist? Is there a, a difference there? To me, there's no such thing as being a Buddhist, to me, because being a Buddhist is a label, and a label assumes that there's a permanent thing that we're identifying as a Buddhist. Because if we're labeling something as a Buddhist, well, okay, if it's a label, now identify what is a Buddhist. And you can't identify a permanent label of describing what a Buddhist is. Gautama Buddha wasn't Buddhist because the, that term didn't originate until after his death. So as soon as we label something as a Buddhist, then, okay, well, what's the definition of a Buddhist? And you can't define it 
in a way that applies to all people. It's not permanent. So oftentimes people ask me, and as I was progressing in this path, sometimes my students, when I was teaching Thai massage, people would come up to me after I just did some big event. They would say, are you Buddhist? And I didn't know how to answer the question because I didn't really think about it being Buddhist or not. I just thought about it as I'm just practicing uh, a better way of life. So to me, I'm a practitioner of Gautama Buddha's teachings. I'm practicing his teachings, but I, I don't really label myself as a Buddhist. In certain conversations, when people ask me if I'm a Buddhist, sometimes it's easier just to say yes and move on to the next topic. Um, rather than going through all the details of why I don't consider myself the label of a Buddhist, I just consider myself a human being. You know, we have these labels, right? Like Caucasian, blonde hair, American, male, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, likes this, likes that, likes this. This is all identification with the self. This is all self identity. So when you eliminate the self, when there is no self, you're not going to identify with all these labels. You're not going to identify. So that's why I don't identify with any of these things. I don't, the only thing I identify is like, yeah, I can say I'm human for sure. I can say I'm human. I'm starting to not even be able to say I'm blonde anymore because when my hair grew out a little bit, I saw a bunch of gray. I can't even say I'm blonde anymore, right? So all these labels are impermanent. They're not fixed. That's, there's no permanent self. So I don't identify with any of these labels. And like, like, you know, we say people, this is African-American or this is a black person. This is a brown person. This is an Asian person. This is a Muslim person. This is a Middle East person. These are all just labels and categories that then now we're supposed to disagree with each other. To me, all I see is a person. All I see is a human being. That's all I see. I don't see the, 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 I mean, yes, I can tell someone's skin is darker or lighter, but that doesn't say anything about that person to me because there's kind people who have various pigments of skin, very polite and kind people, and there's very mean people that have various pigments of skin. So as soon as we try to generalize and stereotype and label, it's just trying to categorize people. And if we drop all these things, then you get to non-self a lot, lot easier because you don't identify with any of these labels. So I don't identify with the Buddhist label because who, I, who determines what a Buddhist is and what a Buddhist isn't? Who makes that determination? There's nobody that determines that. There's no authoritative source that tells us what a Buddhist is or what a Buddhist isn't. So It's also it's a practice of inquiry into the nature of things and and once you say ah i am this you're no longer doing that inquiry you're you're, you're waiting for someone else to tell you what is yeah. so it seems kind of an antithetical really to what to what buddha taught yeah some people call people who are on this path they call them seekers like truth seekers you're a truth seeker you're after the truth what is the truth what is the true reality and the more that you learn these teachings and you practice them to get wisdom, you will start to see the truth more and more. So, I mean, I, I guess you could say I, I'm a, tr I don't know. 
and I don't even want to say I'm a truth seeker, you know, because it's like, well, what is that? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, if you're not a Buddhist, you're not a truth speaker, you know, what are you? Well, I practice Gautama Buddha's teachings. You know, I'm a practitioner of his teachings. I'm a human being. That's it. And uh, that's something I've trained my son about, too, is, is I ask him occasionally, I say, Bailan, what are you? It's like, I'm a human being, you know? But I had to train him to, to learn that kind of stuff because I know Roberto was asking about children. And uh, it's fun to train children because they're so young. They don't have the, as much craving. They don't have as much hatred. They don't have as much delusion. They don't have as much ego. So they can actually make progress very quickly on this path because they haven't had the ego really set in and take root yet. That's, that's a really interesting point, yes. I feel like a lot, for a lot of us that happens as we start to turn into adults, you know, we start to get layered on more, more ideas of self or ever more fragile sense of self and who we need to be in the world and what we need to do and what we need to have in order to be worth something. And, and the path is really about stripping a lot of that away. And I think if, yep. you know, the earlier we can, we can get into that, because like, like we discussed uh, a couple of classes ago, it's as much about not adding new attachments as it is about uprooting existing attachments. I think. Yeah, and, and that goes to non-self, what you were just saying about all these expectations. If there's a self, we're going to have all these expectations of ourself, and others are going to have expectations that we adopt as our own expectations. And if there's a self, we're going to constantly crave to fulfill all these expectations, and we're just going to go through life trying to constantly fulfill all these expectations. And that's why the Buddha teaches there is no self. Eliminate it. Eradicate it. His exact words are, you know, eradicate the conceit I am. And that is nibbana in this very life. So basically like I am. I am David. I am a personal trainer. I am a Buddhist teacher. I am a father. I am a husband when we keep saying, I am this, I am this, this is the self, this is the expectations, this is the ego. So when we just eradicate that stuff and we just don't, you know, yes, like for Carol, I know she's a nurse, like, yeah, I'm a nurse and I need to go, I'm going to go to my job and I'm going to take care of these children. But being a nurse doesn't define who I am. I care for people and I happen to have an occupation where I get to go to work daily and care for people. And through that care, yeah, I collect some money that I then use for my life to sustain my life. But that job of a nurse doesn't define who I am. You know, I'm, there's still going to be this body and still this mind. If I'm not a nurse, it's still going to be there. So what Carol is, is Carol is a caring, loving, compassionate person. And she just happened to pursue getting skills, some marketable skills that she can now use in a work environment that she can get compensation for in order to sustain her life as her livelihood. Right? Is that correct, Carol? Like you're a caring, compassionate, loving person, and you've gotten some skills that you can now market and you can 
acquire an income to take care of your life. But when you weren't a nurse during the time where you were off of work, you know, you, you still existed. You weren't a nurse, so to speak, during that time because you weren't collecting a paycheck, but you were still a human being. Yeah. Actually, that was one of my big lessons in losing my ego was before I was an elementary school nurse, I was an emergency room nurse. And in my mind, I had such a higher statue because I was saving lives every day in the ER that when I lost that job, I felt a part of, I had to rebuild because I had to lose, let go of that ego. Mm -hmm. And now that I work in what I would have considered a lower stature job a few years ago, I realized how important that role is, even though it doesn't have that stature that I had created. Yes. And that's why eliminating the ego, eliminating the self, the self-identity, the self-image is so peaceful. Because now when I see your Facebook post, you're so much, you're so peaceful. You love your job. Whereas if you would have held on to that ego and you're like, I've got to be the ER nurse because all my friends respect me and my family respects me and I get all these you know, great feelings because I'm the great big bad ER nurse. If you would have held on to that, your life wouldn't be nearly as peaceful as it is now, right? Probably would have been dead. Honestly. There you go. So um, that shows you that the Buddhist teachings on non-self is absolutely a universal truth by eradicating that you've actually been able to attain more peace. Absolutely. There you go. That's how you know it's the truth. And then you just work to eradicate that self as much as possible. Never assume the ego is gone and always work to eradicate it more and more and more. And that's how you know it's truth because it's working for you. Yep. Good job. Yeah. Do you guys have any other questions? Any other thoughts? There are no more questions over here, so looks like we're um, yeah, all done with the questions for now. Okay. Well, if I could quickly, I just want to thank you for clarifying the um, the four noble truths. Uh, reading it is one thing, but then actually discussing it puts uh, puts a whole new light on it. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. And that's great, Rob, Roberto, that you're sharing the teachings with other people. Uh, just one thing I will share with you is be sure that you're craving and desire because you know how true these are and it's actually helping you. Be sure you don't develop craving and desire around helping other people and causing your mind to be discontent if somehow they're not quite in the same place as you as understanding these teachings. Um, so always keep in mind the most important part of your practice is your practice. It's great that you, that you have an interest to share it with other people, but just always stay focused on your practice. Uh, and then where people are interested to learn, um, then you can share it with them and help them see it. But oftentimes people in the world, there's so much craving, there's so much hatred, there's so much delusion that you know, this isn't like some traditions where you have to go out and save everybody and you have to like fix everybody. The number one person you want to work on is yourself. 
And then as people see your mind more and more calm, more and more content, people are going to be like, hey, what are you doing, man? Like you used to be more frustrated than this and you're like so calm now. What happened? Oh, are you interested in knowing? Like I'll share it with you. So just be sure you keep your craving in check with that if you have any around that because that can be a source of frustration as well, craving to help people. And that's why this isn't about what's right or wrong. Remember, I always say that about the Buddhist teachings. It's about understanding what's causing the discontent mind because the intention is, yeah, I would like to help these people. That's a good intention to have. But if there's a strong eagerness to do so, it'll cause the mind to be discontent. On topic of the, the Four Noble Truths, I feel like sometimes it is our discontentedness that ultimately drives us to want to, to learn and practice. It's probably the, probably the primary thing it does. And so then if if someone else isn't seeing their discontentedness as much of a problem yet, then there's, there's not really that will to want to learn or to change it. But when it becomes such a big issue and it's just undeniable that they're they're suffering and and that they're causing it then an individual is actually likely to turn their attention to okay how can i fix this where is my responsibility here what can i learn but until that point um it, it's 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 really i suppose only possible to help oneself really and, and that is also how you help other people exactly um, and this is why I gave Roberto the, the idea of when his children are discontent. The, that's the time when the mind, you know, when they're coming out of crying about a broken toy or whatever, that's a good time to introduce some of the teachings to them because you've kind of captured their attention at that point. Uh, oftentimes I find students that will find me are when they broke up with uh, a certain boyfriend or girlfriend or when a parent died or they had a financial catastrophe, or there's, you know, there's some, it's like rock bottom, right? They're, that's often the motivator that says, I got to do something better than this. What I'm currently doing isn't working. What else is out there? And they'll start looking. As long as the mind is generally calm and genuinely content, feeling frustrated here and there, the person isn't really looking for how to solve the problem because they don't even realize they have a problem. They're just experiencing frustration here and there. But it's when people get to that despair, you know, and not the like deep, deep despair, because sometimes they can be convinced that they're mentally ill. But when people go through a breakup or a death in a family or something like this, these are like pivotal times when people will often look for uh, teachings like this and they become more instrumental in people's lives. And I also noticed that people uh, that are older, you know, Max, you're, you're in your 30s, but oftentimes I find people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even I've got some students who are in their 70s and 80s. You know, when you're getting near death, that's when people start kind of looking at these teachings and like, hey, I better do something. Like, I feel like I'm headed somewhere that I don't understand. So the fact that you guys are all fairly young still and looking at these teachings and really dedicating time to learn and practice them is great because end of life, like you've already experienced a lot of frustration and anger and irritation. Like why not focus on this now and get to a good peaceful state so that you can enjoy the rest of your life with enlightenment? Um, I'm not going to ever say that there's ever a time that's too late because it's never too late. Um, but, uh, you know, 
the earlier you guys study and the more time and dedication you commit to it, the more peacefulness that you can experience over the course of your life. So rather than wait until you're 80 or rather than waiting until you're in despair or you've hit rock bottom, doing what you guys are doing and kind of building up a, a daily practice and coming to this class weekly, reading the book, doing all the different things that you're doing, meditating to learn. This is all really helpful for you. It's only going to improve the condition of the mind, which is going to improve the condition of your life. All right. I think that uh, we're all done for class today. Uh, appreciate you guys being here and joining for class. Uh, keep reading the book. We started chapter four today. It's kind of like Sunday is like the official start of each one of these chapters. So if you haven't read the chapter uh, or you haven't read it in a while, download the book. Now that you've had this talk, read the Four Noble Truths in the book or watch the Facebook video for Four Noble Truths. Take the quiz on the Four Noble Truths. Definitely keep meditating. And with these three universal truths, you know, go around. If they're not quite sunk into the mind yet that everything's impermanent, go around and try to identify something that's permanent and try to do it. Uh, observe the mind when it becomes discontent that it has painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. Observe how the self gets in the way, the ego, these expectations, the identity, the image. Observe that you're causing your own discontent mind, uh, that you're causing it. So whenever you get angry or frustrated or lonely or bored, rather than looking externally to blame it on something else, look internally and see what attachments or what craving you're having that's causing the discontent mind. And then work to eliminate that. And as soon as you eliminate it, the mind will become more peaceful, more calm. And then next week on Sunday, we're going to dive into the Eightfold Path. So you guys have a really great week. And in the meantime, keep up with your meditation practice. Keep reading. Keep learning. Keep reflecting on these teachings and seeing the truth for yourself. All right. Sawadikap. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, David. You're welcome. Thanks, all. Thanks, Max. Yeah, see you soon, guys. Good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.